And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic The only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, We're going to be chatting about some of the big Arsenal topics of the week, as well as looking forward to the weekend's game at home to Brentford. To do that, we're joined by Art de Roche and Amy Lawrence. Morning. Good morning. Morning. Nice to see you guys. Now, before we get going, uh, there was a huge story that broke this week about the alleged financial impropriety of Manchester City, 108 breaches of financial fair play rules over a nine-year period which starts in 2009 and goes on until 2018 a period in which they won three league titles by the way some with players bought from us what we thought we'd ask if the charges turn out to be true and Manchester City get relegated to the National League or something (laughs) who should we buy from them Oh, I'm going to come to you first because I know <laughs> that Amy's got the same player. Yeah. We're only allowed one each. <laughs> well, I don't know if this is like a cheat now. but No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but my one was going to be Rodri just yeah. going off what Arsenal's needs are. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I felt like that was the obvious one. If you're looking at as well, Dark Arts, which we've spoken about a lot. I think he's probably one of the masters of that in the league at the minute, obviously. Last year on New Year's Day, he made like 10,000 fouls and wasn't booked until uh, he took off his shirt when he was celebrating the winner. So, yeah, he'd probably be be my pick, I reckon. Yeah, good pick. I like that. Amy, considering that Rodri is now already an Arsenal player, <laughs> who are you having? <laughs> well, as you well know from uh, Dear Listener, we had a little chat about this before recording. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Hensie thinks it's hilarious to go to art first. I do. And I'm a comedian. I know about this stuff. Uh, but yeah, for all, all, all the same reasons, it makes sense to uh, to get that kind of player. But failing that, I mean, you know, it would be idiotic not to say Haaland, wouldn't it, really? <laughs> I mean, and yeah, I wouldn't yeah. mind having those same debates in a few months' time about whether a goal scorer that scores, you know, gazillions of goals is, is bad for your team or not I, I could probably live with that debate I think if it came to it I don't think I, I'd put it this way I think he'd probably strengthen us I would say that's true oh yeah yeah exactly it'd be weird wouldn't it be to, to be man he's only got 30 goals he does nothing else for the team doesn't he <laughs> it, but but uh, just just on a similar vein I'll ask you this if Man City do disappear to the, you know, uh, Papa John's trophy or whatever it is, would you take Pep Guardiola over Arteta? Oh, Ooh. no. What, what's getting well? I mean, can I- <laughs> well, there you go. I'm throwing it out there because I think it's an interesting debate to be had, which underlines how you feel about people emotionally, how you feel about people um, non-emotionally, how much store you put on past records, Etc. Etc. It's just an interesting 
debate. Oh, I, I can Go answer. On. I'm throwing that at you. Quick yes, no. Well, I would say no. I would take Mikel. I, w- I want an Arsenal yeah. fan as, uh, as a, an Arsenal manager. And James uh, has written a very, very good piece showing... Mikel Arteta's lack of celebration when he was Man City assistant manager when when they scored against Arsenal. So I'm going for a gooner, all right? I'm having Mikel Arteta. Before you answer that supplementary question that Amy has thrown in there, um, do you know what? I'm having Kevin De Bruyne (laughs) because I think he's absolutely amazing and uh, I'd love... I mean, I mean... You see Erling Haaland uh, when uh, they lost that game of the weekend and he made about a thousand runs and no one played a single pass to him for the entire game as far as I can tell because they don't look for him. But Kevin De Bruyne does. When he comes on, he's looking for Haaland. So I think whichever forward plays uh, at our club would benefit from having Kevin De Bruyne's passing behind them. What about you? Are you having Arteta or or Guardiola? I'd I'd probably stick, to be fair. Just like... I think logically it just makes sense. But also right now, yeah. on that De Bruyne point, I just remember the first time I watched him play live and he's probably the first person I watched and thought that guy is just like an action man. He can do everything. Um, and I was just blown away. Um, yeah. So hopefully, hopefully that De Bruyne doesn't show up in a, in a week or so. But um, yeah, you mentioning him just made me kind of remember that, that feeling going away from a game and just thinking, wow. No, no. They've got, listen. They've got some. They've got some great players, and uh, and we very much look forward to seeing Erling Haaland bearing down on the uh, I don't know Fleetwood Town defence or whatever, <laughs> going down to Torquay and playing ball and see how they get on. Can they do it on a wet Wednesday night in Torquay? Probably, I imagine. But we'll uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll find out. Um, <clears throat> anyway. We are now uh, just over halfway through the season. As Amy said, on this podcast, games are different in the second half of the season. Uh, Art, I'll come to you first. Do you think that is the case? Also, do you think the Everton game was a good example of that sort of thing? Yeah, I think mostly it's just about how they respond. And also, I don't don't think they played particularly badly at Everton. It was just kind of an average performance, really. And I think you saw the energy that Everton came with was a lot better. So I wasn't really overly concerned, more annoyed <laughs> than anything. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do feel like it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of react because I don't think we've we've seen, say, Zinchenko react like he did late on in that game. I don't think that's something... We've seen no. it in that manner a lot. Obviously, Neil Mopé could do that to anyone, though. Couldn't yeah, he? He could. I mean, he I, could wind up. I mean, if Mother Teresa was playing for us, <laughs> or I don't know, the Dalai Lama, he'd yeah. be grabbing Mopé by the throat, wouldn't he? I think as soon as he came on, we all know, we all knew what was going to happen. <laughs> oh, it was but. one of those moments, wasn't it? But no, I want to get to this point about games in the second half of the season. Me and Amy have seen a lot more second halves of the season than you, obviously. Yeah. But do you think? I mean, Amy just said this, and I will talk to you, Amy, about this again. But do you think there is a different flavour now to the whole thing? We've got over that halfway point. We obviously are in a great position. But now the pr- is when the pressure really starts to, to ratchet up. Yeah, well, I mean, it just gets more real. <laughs> First half of the season, you just kind of try and concentrate on your, your own stuff. But now, I guess, especially last week or even the Manchester United game I remember 
the kind of feeling of just nerves going into that because City were the early kickoff. And I don't think you really had those nerves because of those reasons in the first half of the year. So it definitely is, I guess, a different kind of um, emotion going into those games. And hopefully the players can can deal with those. Yeah, well, yes, indeed. I mean, Amy, I, I, I completely agree with you. It was never going to be plain sailing. But did some of the triumphalism annoy you a bit? I mean, I know we talked off air about you know, the piece by in The Guardian by Jonathan Liu when he said that we'd win the title and you're going, you can't, how can you know that? I mean, as far as the fans are concerned, isn't it just a natural excitement at possibilities? Sorry, what was the question? About the fans' excitement or about the triumphalism? Well, it's a bit of both, really, if you like. I mean, talk about generally about what you think about the way that maybe fans have gone a bit too early, perhaps. I don't know. I think most fans have been... Anyway, I I fundamentally dislike anything where you generalise about fans. I just don't think it works. I think when you consider any fan base, particularly one where, you know, it numbers in the multi-millions as a club like Arsenal, how can you possibly compare any kind of sentiments of a kid in a faraway land to an old timer who's been going to Highbury since, you know, in their eighties to someone goes home and away to someone who's naturally optimistic or not, or naturally pessimistic. It's just, there's way, way, way too many variables. And I always think there's a, um, a real risk uh, proclamations of the fans think this and the fans think that because in general, the, the one unifying factor about fans is that they, you know, they care about their team. But even that care takes many forms, and and it, and it has a massive spectrum. You know, there are people who feel, you know, extremely depressed or elated by what happens on the pitch, and there are some who just get on with their day. It's it's too hard. I I, I try not to fall into that trap too easily. And I always find it a, a trick that journalists sometimes use and it annoys me in a press conference or post-match interview where they go, well, the fans this, the fans think this, and the fans think that to some manager or whatever. And you're like, who are you talking for, actually? You know, um, not sure I I think that's an, an entirely just and fair way of uh, phrasing thoughts and processes. If you have that yourself, own it. But, you know, don't make assumptions about millions of people who will feel very differently. We we certainly know that very, very well from, you know, the, the tail end of the Wenger era where, I mean, Jesus, I mean, it wasn't just a split fan base. It was, you know, both extremes and everything in between. So I don't know. I think people were entitled, as particularly youngsters, to get carried away and think, yeah, this is it because you've not experienced how it is to get close and then blow it. Every reaction is understandable and personal. It's valid. Basically. I I was less keen on people from kind of what I would say outside the fan base. I I find that a bit more frustrating when people are like, well, it's Arsenal to lose or Arsenal are going to be bottlers if they don't take advantage of this position. You know, it's nonsense. We, We have to keep reminding ourselves that this is, or certainly has been until some recent acquisitions, the youngest team in the league with a very young manager who's not won the title before as a manager. This is a first for the for vast majority of this group. And 
it just reminds me of so many occasions in the past when Arsenal have put themselves into a really good position and for whatever reason, you know, quite often it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does and it's the best. And we all know those times, luckily, those of us who've lived through it, and it really is as good as you're ever going to feel in your life about your football team. Right. You know? But there's been points in all those seasons when Arsenal have won the league where you think, oh my God, it's all coming crumbling down. <laughs> Even the Invincibles, that Liverpool game. Yeah, half Losing 2-1 at half-time. You've gone out the Champions League. You've gone out the FA Cup. You're losing to Liverpool. And it literally... Even the players on the pitch who had done it all and won it all and were world-class sat there in the changing room absolutely paralysed with fear and shell-shocked and nobody could speak. The yips as a sporting condition, you know, is a very, very well-known thing, particularly in individual sports. We've all seen it. You're kind of dying watching someone on a tennis court or a, or a golf course, like, like be on the top of the mountain and just absolutely fall straight to the bottom in a heartbeat. And it's, it's painful. You don't know when it's going to hit you in sport. You, you know, there's sports psychologists out there for a reason. And the second half of the season, the, the, the reason that the games feel differently to the first half is because you know what's on the line. It's so much clearer. It feels closer to you. So you've got something more close to you to let slip through your fingers. It's real. As, when it's still as quite a, far away, yeah. you can enjoy the ride a lot more. Yeah. You can feel freer. You, your muscles can be more relaxed. Your mind can be more calm. But when you're about to take a shot, and your heart's in your throat because you know that the difference between scoring it and not feels so much more intense. It can affect how your body feels and your mind feels. And do you rush a shot? Do you misconnect? Yeah. Do you hit it too hard? You know, all these things that when you're relaxed, things happen very naturally. And being able to be as natural and as relaxed when you're close to the prize is probably the, one of the toughest things you'll ever encounter as a sportsman. Yeah. Well, as someone who did the died so horribly at the Garden Furniture Awards, I can uh, relate to that in any number of ways. It is when it gets to the point when you're actually walking out in front of thousands of people and you have to perform and uh, it can get... V- what, what was what was your first joke? The, the Garden, Garden Furniture Awards. awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, <laughs> Come on. Uh, my first joke was, uh, if uh, Snoop Dogg, did some gardening, would he use a hoe? <laughs> right? Which which actually is not the worst joke in the world, but to utter silence, followed by everyone just talking to each other. It can be very, very tough out there. I mean, in terms of the... in terms of, I, Listen, I have no idea what it's like with the footballers, of course. That's a different level altogether. But oh, Amy's right. There's no correct way to, inspre- to express enthusiasm for your team, is, it, is there? I mean, in the end, we're all on the journey together. We'd love to have a happy ending. But if it doesn't go that way, we stoically accept that City have allegedly bought another title and look forward <laughs> to a, a better season next year. No, I think that's the thing, really. When you look at how people have, I guess, reacted over the course of the first half of the year, it's been very much just... Okay, we'll enjoy it. Fun, um, fun, fun. Have fun. And I think when, for me personally, it's weeks like this where there's no game in the middle where it just feels like a filler episode <laughs> where I'm just yeah. waiting for the weekend because I actually can't wait to watch Arsenal play. It doesn't matter if they lost on the weekend. I, I just want to see them play football. And I feel like that's 
a feeling that a lot of people have at the minute and probably haven't had for a while. And hopefully it continues. But in that essence of it, there are very different ways people feel about certain situations. And that title, I guess, if if we want to mention it, it's very different to the way outsiders view it, as Amy said, which does become a bit frustrating at times. But again, hopefully we still want to kind of look forward to the games as the season gets more real. Oh, are, are you, I'm interested that you say you're, you know, so much looking forward to seeing the team play. Are you more nervous than you were for a sort of home game against a quite good team in the first half of the season? Um, I am. Me, so me I, I just wondered if you are me or too. we're just different full, full stop. Thinking back to a game that sticks out to me was the game at Old Trafford uh, where Arsenal lost 3-1. And before kickoff, I was just like, what's going on? Why are they taking so long? Just start the game already? And I had that feeling a lot during the first half of the season. And I still had it last week. So I feel like I'm still looking forward to those games. It hasn't really changed for me yet. And maybe I'm lucky <laughs> uh, with that. But also it's a thing about like the timings of the games as well. They really get to me. Like it really annoys me when the TV decide Arsenal are playing the last game on Sunday. And I've got all weekend to think about it. It just annoys me so much. But I've got to be honest, oh, I, I I mean the twelve thirty kickoff on a Saturday is horrendous for us generally, so I'm not I'm not unhappy to wait. <laughs> By the way, uh, while we're on the subject of uh, expressing your enthusiasm and support for the team in different ways, Tottenham did us a massive favour last weekend. They beat Man City one nil. Um I tweeted and I I got the tweet up just so I can actually say what I tweeted. One time only deal, and I hate to say it. But come on, you Spurs, is what I tweeted. All right. Uh, I'm going to ask you first. Amy's shaking her head. I know she is. Uh, Do you think that's too far? (laughs) Um, Maybe to tweet it. I'll say that because um, when I went into the office on Monday, our main editor supports Tottenham. And I went straight to him and went, come on, you Spurs. Because of what happened, obviously. It was a joke. It was Amy's face. Oh my god. It was a joke. Was a and joke. so was mine, by it was the a way. Joke. And so so was mine. Not completely, not entirely a joke. Whenever I say things are a joke, it's not like a joke joke. But it's not like Snoop Dogg and the Ho. You know, that's an actual joke. But I'm saying that it was a joke. And Amy Yeah, it's obviously a joke, but there were just things you don't say. Why I wanted I look I'm not saying I wanted them to win. I wanted Man City to lose. And in order for them to lose, ah. Spurs had to win. Ah. Spurs yes, had no, to but win. you can just say, I want Man City to lose. You don't have to <laughs> say what they say when they are supporting their team. It's do you not just, think Tottenham do you not no. think Tottenham would have got a bit of boost from seeing even an Arsenal fan wants us to win, that'll really drive us on. Do you not think that would No, I really don't, Ian. No. I don't think that was at the forefront of their minds. I'm sorry to disabuse you of any really? notions of like significance on the result. I think Harry Kane saw like. that actual tweet and went, Well, if Arsenal want us to win as well, <laughs> I mean, we all went no, catching uh, Harry uh, when he scored, right? I I <laughs> always remember chatting away to Pat Rice. Pat Rice spent 50 years at Arsenal in various capacities. Uh, pretty much everything that you could do at the club, he's done. He won't say their name. I love it. He used to call them that lot, or them down the road, you know? <laughs> it, it, it would take a lot for him to actually say that name out loud from his lips. Right. I rate that. 
Okay, well, fair enough. Anyway, whatever, it, whatever. It, horses for courses. We all support our team in a different way. I'm not, you know, I uh, I wanted uh, I wanted Man City to lose at the weekend, and in order for so that to die. But that doesn't mean I'm going to start singing their songs <laughs> and then send passing it off as a joke. No. Yeah, we've all heard that one before. Yeah. Uh, well, whatever. All our different attitudes, it works, didn't it? And we are still five points clear with the game in hand. Uh, we might uh, revisit this at some point. One more thing before we go to the break. Alexander Zinchenko won a January Player of the Month. At some point, we will do a fuller analysis of Zinni and what he brings to the side. But Art, why are people surprised? I mean... Every time I watched him play for Man City, and especially for Ukraine, he looked to me like a fantastic player. And he's just brought that energy and that focus and that winning mentality to the Arsenal. The surprise probably just comes from him not starting as a regular for Man City. I think that's it, basically. Because when you look at Man City fans, they knew straight away they were losing a proper player. But it's probably only a matter of time before he won player of the month for Arsenal. I mean, whenever he's been available, he's been the guy that stands out um, and I'm sure I'm with a lot of the listeners. I can't wait for the fuller analysis as you put it, Ian, because I know we, we mention him every week basically because he just does things that others can't. And it's, it's quite a weird situation to see how much the, the left back position has moved on in the space of what, 12 months, six months where if we think a year ago, we wouldn't have thought anyone could replace Kieran Tierney. And now here we are. Um, and that's not to say Kieran Tierney's a bad player because he was probably Arsenal's best player for the past two, three years before Zinchenko came in, almost consistent. Yeah, But it's just an interesting development, which when you see Arteta saying Arsenal are ahead of his plans for them, I feel like that's a massive part of it because no one could really predict what Zinchenko could do for Arsenal on the pitch. And I think teams are still trying to kind of uh, live with that as well. So long may it continue. Amy, I'm, briefly, have you ever seen a player like him before? Because I, I find it hard to, to compare him to anyone, really. I think he's being, he's being asked to do a, a job that's an unusual job. I mean, he's obviously a fantastic player with a lot of amazing attributes as a human as well as as a footballer. But I think, for example, if you asked Santi Cazorla to do something similar, something sort of slightly left field in terms of where your positioning is, it, 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 we could arguably be having a, a similar conversation about a player like that, for example. He wouldn't uh, win as to... many headers from <laughs> goal kicks, I don't think, Santi. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't underrate Santi in, in, <laughs> easily. But... Oh, yeah, he was glorious. But, um, yeah, I, obviously Zinchenko has made a, a, a massive impression. And I do wonder if when Man City sanctioned those deals for Zinchenko and Jesus, they thought that they were actually going to be letting those players go to a title rival. Because I presume that they thought they were, you know, saying go off and have a great Premier League career. But, you know without really thinking that they were going to be part of a team that is immediately going head-to-head with them. And obviously City thought that they were strengthening themselves with the players that they have brought in in those positions. So it's a kind of fascination, I think, from a psychological point of view, to see how that plays out. 
you know, it'd be really interesting to see also, obviously Jesus may not make it back for the first Man City game, but he will be back for the second one. He'll probably be trying to make the first one, but it may come as a slightly bit too too early for safety. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, you know, he's back starting a bit of light training and um, we wish him all the best and a speedy recovery. This is Handbreak Off, Ian Stone, Amy Lawrence and Art de Roche. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Sandbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Art, oh, you wrote a piece about Reese Nelson. Reese, it's a few weeks ago now, went back to the Aylesbury Estate in Southwark, where he grew up, uh, opened a brand new football pitch. Um, so tell us, I mean, this was alongside Ian Wright, uh, who popped along uh, to open it as well. It's giving back, isn't it, essentially? Yeah, I mean, his, his house, you could literally see his house from the playground. So, <laughs> 0.2 seconds away. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually really special, I think, to be there. I didn't expect it to be because that's the first time I've kind of done something like that. Spending the day there, starting speaking to him firstly, he was obviously very articulate in what he was doing. I feel like 
a lot of footballers probably give back in similar ways behind the scenes, but it's not made public a lot. But with with this, you could see what the motivation was because it was his old primary school. And it was quite nice just to see when you got there, a lot of the teachers were in Arsenal shirts. So like the assistant, uh, deputy head, sorry, Sarah Haley, I'll give her a mention. Uh, season ticket holder at Arsenal was in an Arsenal shirt and she was at the game where he scored twice against Nottingham Forest. So you just had a lot of little kind of things that were quite cool. One of his old teachers was still there as well. Um, so they kind of had a little moment during the assembly that was mentioned. And obviously the kids that were there as well, I think that's what really kind of swung it was their reaction to, first of all, him, <laughs> obviously. And then the deputy head showed a picture of what the pitch look, used to look like. Yes. And the younger kids kind of just flipped. They they lost their mind even more so than when Reese walked into the room and if anything, it was funny. <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was a great day. Obviously, happened in November, so we were kind of waiting until he was returning back to kind of fitness and stuff before putting it out. But yeah, I'm glad that I was finally able to get out there because, as you say, it, it's really kind of important important thing for for Risa as an individual. I mean, Amy, we get. We get a real sense of Arsenal in the in the in their community in Islington, and how connected they are. But there's also those wider links, aren't there, as well? I mean, I mean, them them lot, if you want to call them that, up the road, often go on about us South London club and all that nonsense. But we have a lot of connections with South London, don't we? I mean, you think about the team we watched in the eighties. Absolutely. I mean, that was you know, core of the team came from South London and, and Essex, really, around those sort of times. But I think just the, the South London roots are will, will know more about this than me, but I think particularly for the black community in South London, growing up seeing, you know, Ian Wright, David Rocastle, Michael Thomas, Paul Davis, Kevin Campbell, those role models who just made such a huge impact, I think have been a, a big part of the fact that the club has those connections and maintains them. And also, like, going back a, a bit, Arsenal were sort of almost undeniably the biggest team in London for, you know, many, many decades. And it's only really more recently where I think people don't feel that quite as strongly because of the the way the game has globalised and the way that obviously the money has come in and the new stadium and it, and it gives a sort of status to Chelsea, Tottenham, even to an extent West Ham, that... It, well, didn't seem to be on such a level quite up with Arsenal, you know, in you know from the sort of thirties to the two thousands or whatever, um, roughly. I'm yeah, slightly maybe overestimating my decades, but you get the gist. But yeah, I think there's still a, a great presence down there, which is uh, which is great. And I even go back to the eighties. There was a big supporters club branch from South London I think their acronym was SLAG <laughs> South London Arsenal uh, I don't know something like that but something nice they, they loved that which, <laughs> yes <laughs> I might need correcting on that but I think I think that was right <laughs> uh, no but it's it, it, you know like like I say I, I read the piece and and you can see uh, how excited the kids were and how excited the teachers were as well. And uh, there's a pitch down there where kids will develop and maybe another uh, Reese Nelson or Wrighty will uh, will come out of that. 
The other good story at the moment that I want to mention, Flo Balligan on loan at Lum in League 1. And I must say, by the way, I watched a number of videos <laughs> to try and practice that. It wasn't a bad attempt, I felt. I mean, I read that they don't use their, the French don't use their lips to pronounce, not like red. It's in the back of the throat, they are, you see. And I, I watched. Anyway, <laughs> I just, I wanted to be as uh, culturally sensitive as I could, but that's where he is uh, in Liga. Uh, he continues to outscore Alexandre Lacazette, as well as a couple of other decent strikers in Messi, Neymar and Mbappe. He has 18 months left on his contract. Um, Amy, what do you think we should do and what do you think the club will do? Such a good question and probably quite a difficult one to give a definitive answer to because I think they have two quite tempting options here. One of which is to keep keep him at the club, integrate him as quickly as possible and hope that a la William Saliba, he's going to come in after a year in Ligue 1 of improvement and just be a phenomenon. The alternative is to maximise the exposure that he's got to get a... Uh, Alex Iwobi, Joe Willock style high fee to put into other um, aspects of developing the squad. And I guess that it will come down to two things. One is basically the eye and analytical heart of uh, Mikel Arteta and whether he sees Flo and what he's done and how he's improved as being... Premier League, Champions League ready and ready for the next step and more to come and wanting him in because there's definitely going to be room for another centre forward in the squad next season without fail. Or whether the, you know, the other influence is, is the overall finances and what areas and how many players Arsenal are looking to strengthen in the summer. Because, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Declan Rice mm-hmm. And I, the more talk there is, the more nervous I am, I think, of that price escalating to a point where Arsenal might say, OK, we're out. Because while he might want to, he might be interested in coming and Arsenal is certainly interested in having him, it's not unlimited money that Arsenal are dealing in, as we've seen in other deals. <clears throat> I think they'll go as far as they possibly can. But if there are three or four other wealthy suitors knocking around and it becomes a kind of bidding war. Arsenal tend not to do bidding wars. Yeah. So it that it'll come within the picture of how much money can be raised from sales. And I think there are potential sales in the summer. Arsenal have been very bad sellers for a while now. But the, I think they're they're now in a position where that shouldn't be the case. They've certainly got assets that if they do need to sell, sell them, it's not a case of we can't get rid of X because nobody's going to pay that money or nobody's going to take the wages on. It's now a case of, I think Arsenal will be fighting people off, to be honest, to keep their players. If people do have to go, the values are going to be rocketed compared to recent years. It's where the outlay is, where the income is and where Flo Balogun fits into that. And only Mikel Arteta has the answer. What do you think, Art? I mean, he's an academy player. We've all enjoyed very much seeing Eddie Nketiah in the team and Bukayo Saka and Emile Smith-Rowe and Reese, when he's fit. I like the idea of Arsenal trotting out with four or five academy players in the first team because I, 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 look, I might be wrong about this, but it, 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 it provides more connection between us and the fans. Uh, Balogun was so well spoken of in the youth 
I remember playing five-a-side years ago and somebody said to me, oh, this kid, I've heard about this kid at Arsenal. This is when he was about 14 or 15. He's obviously starting to fulfil his potential now. I mean, he could save us 50 or 60 million quid on a striker. Mm. Just on his contract, I think it's 2025. So, ah, okay. Two and a half years, not 18 months. But in terms of forward thinking into to next season, I similar point to Amy, but you can't really be a top team with two strikers. You need at least three if you're playing one up top. But well, you know, Eddie and Ketty and Gabriel Jesus can both kind of drift wherever they want to, really. And for me, I'd be inclined to to keep him, as you said, Ian. Obviously, there's a, a benefit to him being an academy boy. But also, I just feel he's proved that he can perform at, at senior level. Obviously, last year was more difficult in the championship with Middlesbrough. I remember being at the Den when he played against Millwall. And he he um, wanted a penalty, didn't get it. And for the rest of the game, he was booed. And it was just an interesting thing to, to watch happen. And then going into this season, his debuts at the Velodrome at Marseille away. And I just think his football education, I guess you'd call it, in the past year or just over a year, has put him in a really good kind of stride to do whatever he wants in the summer. That's a really good point, Art. It's not just what Arsenal wants, what he wants, although obviously with the contract you hold a certain amount of cards, but it's also what does he want? And he has been brilliant. And he's been the main man for his team in big games all season. So if he does come back to Arsenal, how does he get his mind around being maybe third choice as well? So there's things that you have to work on with all that stuff too, but... Overall, it's been a, a sensational loan spell. I mean, I can think of a few better, actually. One of the best that we've ever had, actually. And, uh, well, well, we'll keep a very close eye uh, on that. Meanwhile, Saturday, 3 o'clock at the Emirates, uh, Brentford at home. Can I just say that I just don't think this is going to be fun for anyone. <laughs> Hopefully it will be at the end. I just think it's going to be a really, really tense, tough afternoon. I'd love to think we'd be 4-0 up after 60 minutes and we'll bring on, you know, one Yeri off the bench <laughs> just to give it. Hey, you'll have another run out. Go on. I just don't feel it'll be that way. I mean, the Athletics Brentford reporter, Jay Harris, uh, has a piece up on their record against top six sides. Oh, I'll come to you first. A couple of things that sent a few shivers after last Saturday's game. The way they play against top six sides, they play a 5-3-2. The focus is clearly on being compact at the back and direct going forward. In their 2-1 victory over Man City, the Etihad in November, they only had 25% possession and hit 31% of their passes long. Sort of has a has a little reminder of Everton at the weekend. Mm. The big thing is, though, this is at the Emirates, where I feel, especially since Brentford have come into the Premier League, every game that has been played, I feel the fans have had a really big impact, not just in terms of, what okay, what's happening on the grass, but I think first opening, opening game, it was all Brentford fans. Um, everything was about them. Uh, then you come to the Emirates and that's when I feel like the voice of the Emirates was getting a lot louder uh, gradually at that point. And again, first time we played them this season at Brentford, it was an early kickoff. 
and it was just really subdued and Arsenal were actually able to silence Brentford Stadium really quickly. And I just feel Brentford almost, not more the most in the league, but it feels like the atmosphere really helps in those games because everyone knows they are there to upset teams and they can do. The Manchester City game was probably the the best smash and grab I've seen because they didn't look out of control in any point of the game. They even when, it. They even when they didn't have the ball, they looked like they were comfortable. So I think Jay is right in kind of giving everyone that reminder that Brentford aren't they're going to be there to be pushed over. But um, personally, I feel, I'm not sure if optimistic is going to be the right word, but I feel a bit more comfortable with it being at the Emirates. Yeah. Amy, I mean, I must admit, I agree with Art. What do you think? I just was thinking about the Amazon documentary and some of those dressing room team talks of Mikel Arteta's. And I've got a feeling that he's probably got something up his sleeve for this one because it feels like one of those that I can't imagine that he would have handled uh, the performance no. at Everton. <clears throat> no. You know, particularly well. And I and, and and there was so much praise for Everton and it, I found it slightly unusual the way that in the kind of aftermath of that, it was all about <laughs> how, you know, Everton's plan affected Arsenal and Everton's passion affected Arsenal and Everton. Well, the other thing that affected Arsenal was Arsenal and Arsenal didn't play very well, I'm afraid. And a lot of the things that they have been doing this season, they didn't do very well. There wasn't a, a precision about their shooting. There wasn't enough Christmas about the passing. There were too many mistakes. They were doing things that they haven't been normally doing. And you can't just say, oh, well, that happened because Everton. Uh, you have to take some responsibility for that. And I think that, again, there's. A, I think it would be a mistake for Arsenal to... Obviously, they've got to prepare themselves as best they can for everything that the opposition have to offer and how they'll approach it. But Arsenal have got to get Arsenal's game right. And if Arsenal get Arsenal's game right, then given the home record, given their position on the table, however it happens, and it may well be very uncomfortable, but they ought to get the point. Well, let's leave that there then. <laughs> let's have a song uh, to end. Um, Amy, what you got for us? Well, uh, the um, Declaration of Love by Mikel Arteta after the Everton game was was quite touching, really. I was talking to someone uh, recently about... Gosh, a game so long ago. It was Arsene Wenger's first North London derby when Ian Wright ripped off his T-shirt and had a handwritten T-shirt saying, I love the lads on it. I love that T-shirt <laughs> so much. I would pay good money to have a... You know, if somebody knocked off versions of that T-shirt, it's one of my all-time favourite things. And I think that that messaging, you know, I love the lads, I love my team, I love my players, you know, it, good times and bad was such a great thing to come out with in a moment where probably inside he wanted to kick down some doors and smash a few heads together and was fuming. I've gone for Fontaine DC and I love you. Yeah, I mean, I, I should say, by the way, that I tweeted that I love this team. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's all down to you, Stoney, of course. Sorry. No, no, yeah, no, no, we, no, no we... but I think those declarations are <laughs> Harry Kane was listening, Mikel Arteta was listening. What have you got for us I next, mate? I wasn't saying that. I wasn't saying that. It's a good song, that, by the way. I was just saying that I, I, I think it's nice to declare your love. And as he said, they need it 
more now and they've earned it haven't they and so i think that's absolutely right fair enough uh what you got Art? it's not as good nowhere near as good <laughs> but mine's along the lines of what i was talking about earlier in terms of just being bored during the week and waiting for the games to come <laughs> the song is literally called boredom by tyler the creator because i just want the weekend to get here already i it's thursday and i just want it to be saturday already um and it's getting like that every week nice so hurry up it is. please it is. <laughs> yeah there is a, there are a number of good boredom songs actually buzzcocks did a great boredom song in about a thousand years ago <laughs> and uh, also iggy pop i'm bored my song, well, when I was getting all enthusiastic, uh, Amy did say to me that it felt a little like the 89 season when we were miles ahead of Liverpool and then they sort of reeled us in and we had a wobble, although we know how it ended. Anyway, I've gone for Pop Song 89 by R.E.M. or Rum. That's their no new songs. Oh, no, it's all worth it. <laughs> I've been listening to it endlessly. The live version, if you want, from Greensboro Coliseum, Pop Song 89. That's it for uh, Handbrake Off. Thanks to Art and Amy, and thanks to Steve, uh, who produced the show. And uh, enjoy the game. On Saturday, I'm Ian Stone. This has been Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Mm-hmm.